Well, good morning, everyone. Let's open with a word of prayer. Well, Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us and close our ears to any error that I may speak. And Lord, as we, as, we, uh, as we learn about the Antichrist, as we learn about these last days, as we, as we continue our series on 1 John, Lord, I ask that you would help us to ponder this most interesting of texts, Lord. What is the Antichrist? What is the spirit of the Antichrist? And how does it apply to us today, Lord? I pray that you would help us to be aware of this spirit within the church, this spirit within the world, Lord. That we would be cognizant of it, and not only cognizant of it, Lord, that you would help us not to fall prey to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I read a quote from John Wesley. Uh, it was an interesting one. If you've never heard of John Wesley, uh, he was an interesting fellow. Uh, someone asked John Wesley what he would do if he knew his Lord would return at that time the next day. And he said, in effect, I would go to bed and go to sleep, wake up in the morning, and go on with my work. I would want him to find me doing what he had appointed. So John Wesley was an Anglican pastor. He lived and died as an Anglican. Um, most Methodists or some Methodists don't know that, um, but he did. He, um, the Methodists were rebels, I'm sorry. Uh, no, uh, he lived and died as a Methodist. Uh, there was another famous Methodist also, George Whitfield. Uh, Wesley was an Arminian. Uh, George Whitfield was a Calvinist. Uh, both of these Methodists were very active pastors, both in England and in the United States. John Wesley lived his life to make a difference for Jesus. That's what he was about from the time uh, he became a believer. Um, uh, he was devoted to making a difference for Jesus Christ. Uh, he really, he preached the gospel in Georgia. He preached the gospel through the South. He preached the gospel all the way through the colonies in the 1700s. He wanted to make a difference for Jesus. That's what he lived for. So did John Whitfield. These men, and that's what they were about. And that's really where I found many of the saints of God. People who want to grow up making a difference for Jesus. Once they become a believer, they go about and they go out and they make a difference for Jesus. Now, a lot of folks, we look to those people and we, want, we see them and we admire them. We admire the old saints. We know about these old people. We know about how they made a difference for Jesus. We put them on a wall. We think about them. We read them and we study them. And we think, wow, we can't be like them. But that's a lie. We can all be like them, right? Because they're saints because they went out and they simply did. So many of us don't. And that's the difference. They do, we don't. We look to them and we admire them for what they did. There are a lot of saints that we don't know about who spent their whole life doing things for God. They didn't become famous, but they did just as much for Jesus. If you doubt that, you can go to the library at Beeson Seminary, and there's all these big figures, these statues of people, uh, uh, little old ladies and, and gentlemen and, um, and pastors from foreign countries and missionaries from foreign countries that you've never heard about, and they're all these martyrs. All of them have died for their faith. People that I never 
ever heard about. And there's these great tales behind them when you ask about them. People who have died this century for the faith. People that worked and lived their whole lives and served in poor countries that we've never heard about, but that made a drastic difference for Jesus. It's just that some of these folks have managed to become popular. We've learned about them. We didn't know about them. Now, like all folks who make a massive difference for Jesus, John Wesley was focused on getting on with just that, making a difference for Jesus rather than sitting around and speculating about things or endlessly studying about theology or pondering about the end times. Now, that's not that studying or pondering isn't helpful, but the end point of our studying and pondering is making a difference, right? That's why we study the Bible, and that's why we ponder about theology. How many of you have studied and studied and studied, but not actually used it? How many of you have known people who study and study and study, but don't ever actually use it? John Wesley was a man who studied and he knew, but he also used it. Now, there's no, probably no part of Scripture where people lose their focus on more than those sections dealing with the end times. People absolutely obsess over it. Why do they obsess over the parts of Scripture dealing with the end times? As any pastor will tell you, when we ask, look, what part of Scripture do you want to have a Bible study on? The number one thing that they all want to say, that everybody will raise their hand if they're a new believer on, is what book? Revelation, right? Now, if I start a study on Revelation, people will quickly get bored. Why? Because Revelation demands that you understand the rest of Scripture. And if I start a study on Revelation, you better know your Old Testament. And most people don't know their Old Testament. It alludes to the Old Testament all the way through. It's pregnant with the Old Testament. But here's the thing about Revelation. John wrote the Revelation, right, or the Apocalypse, that's what it says in Greek, to a current congregation. He didn't write it to one little people group at the very end of history, the only people group who was going to undergo the Apocalypse. He wrote it to a congregation at that present time. And why did he write it to a congregation at that present time? Because it was explaining a thing that they were currently going through. Revelation, just like Daniel, was written so that we could currently understand what life was like. It was telling and teaching us now. And so people are often shocked when we read Revelation and we have a Bible study that I'm explaining things to them right now, because John was. And so they're astonished when we read some of these passages that they apply to us currently. And so people who get into this mindset of, Endlessly looking at the end times and studying the end times, there was a a gentleman who makes his whole ministry or made his entire ministry about the end times. I grew up and you would watch him on a TBN or all these different Christian stations and that's his entire ministry and people would get completely absorbed with this. He did nothing else but teach about this thing or wasting their time. There's something more than just focusing on the end times. We are called to be about something more than that, right? Now, that said, our passage then 
in 1 John gives us something about the end times to think about a little bit more seriously this morning, but it also applies to the here and now. So it, it connects us to the end times, but it also connects us to the here and now. And that's what we can expect with all of the end times passages. So let's dig in a little bit deeper this morning, shall we? So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. If not, we'll have it also on the screen. 1 John 2, 18. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So it's the last hour, and that's how John opens this. Now, this is kind of an interesting passage because a lot of folks struggle with this last hour concept, right? The Bible will often say it's the last hour, it's the end times immediately, things like this. Folks get lost on this, right? Does John actually think it's the last hour? What's the problem with him saying it's the last hour? Anybody? We take it literally, okay? So if you take it literally, what's the problem? There's many, it's 2,000. There's many more hours. So was John crazy? Was John wrong? And if John was wrong, then is this passage true? Is the Bible the Word of God? People will automatically jump to that assumption when they read this passage. It's the last hour. So a lot of times when new believers or, or secularists or other folks come to passages like that, that's the first thing that they'll jump to. They'll really struggle with their, with their faith when they read something like this. So we're the disciples expecting Jesus to return right then. We're believers. Well, we do know from other passages in Scripture that some believers were definitely expecting Jesus to return right then. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers not to quickly be shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice, the shaking or the alarm was coming from people in this letter, other than Paul, Silvanus, or Timothy. So 2 Thessalonians, by the way, we always say it's a Pauline letter, but it was written by three, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And Paul warns right here what? He says, it's other than us. There's a letter other than us. And people in, in Thessalonians or Thessalonica, they are shaken by the fact they think that the Lord has already come and they've missed out, right? Similar, the Jehovah's Witnesses kind of taught that. They taught that the Lord has already come in a, in, a, in a certain fashion, right? And some people have maybe missed out. That's because one of their, one of their original teachers said that the Lord would come on a certain date and the Lord didn't come on that certain date. And they said, well, actually, he did come. You just didn't see it, right? And so there's a certain uh, extra number of people will be saved. Anyway, it's a long story. That's how you cover up for a lie, right? So, okay. So this is what happens. And so Paul says, no, the Lord hasn't come yet. And, and the Thessalonians were very concerned. They were constantly worried about the end times. In fact, there was a group that was so worried about the end times that they went up on their rooftops and began to party waiting for the end times. They began to freeload and live upon everybody else, right? They began to live on the rest of the church, partying and waiting for the end times to come. And some people were so worried about what they were doing that they said, maybe the Lord has already come. 
because they had received false teaching. So to counter this, Paul goes on to preach what exactly what will take place in the end time. So in Acts 2, though, we read this. The Apostle Peter gets up to preach. In the opening of the sermon, he states this, Acts 2, 16 to 17. This was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, this comes right after Pentecost. This is a very key phrase, or statement, excuse me. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This is an interesting statement. A lot of people miss this. According to Peter and according to Joel, when did the last days start? At Pentecost. A lot of people are shocked by this. A lot of people think that the last days are going to start, well, whenever Revelation describes it, or the apocalypse in Greek, right? Whenever that day is, a lot of people think that's when it's going to start. But according to Peter, when do the last days start? During the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, that ushered the coming or the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And things radically changed at that time. Things are very different. It's ushered the final era of redemptive history. This is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So the temple has been destroyed. No longer will, the, will God be in the holy of holies. The God's holy of holies now will be within you. This is why the temple will not be rebuilt, right? So some folks teach, oh, the temple's going to be rebuilt. And I say, why? Why would the temple be rebuilt? The temple is within you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make sense that the temple would be rebuilt. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this. That's what the whole thing about, that's what the prophecy of Jeremiah 31 is all about. So the last days have been ushered in according to Scripture because Scriptures like these have come to pass. And if you are an amillennialist, no millennium like me, or the millennium, we're in the millennium. There's two ways to think about an amillennialist. So we're in the millennium. The millennium started, I just believe, Acts 2. So other people have different views on that. It's okay for them to be wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Everybody has a different view. Right? Where there's 10 Christians, there's 25 views on the end times. It's okay. There's a whole book I've got on the end times and all the different views. And it's okay to have all different kinds of theories. By the way, if you want to know the official Anglican theory on the end times, it's this. <sighs> Focus on something else. Okay. Uh, there's all kinds of theories. We, we say it's mystery. All right? Entertain all the theories you want. Focus on other things. All right? It's okay to have different theories. All right. Uh, but in general, I'm an amillennialist um, on most days. There's some days I'm other things. Uh, yeah. So, but we're in the final millennium or the final period. Um, regardless, though, when John pens it, he says this. It's the last hour. And so it's reasonable to assume that he's in keeping with Peter or Paul when he's writing this text. That's a reasonable thing to conclude. Now, you may think, though, that he thinks that it is the last hour. That's also a reasonable thing to conclude. He might think 
Maybe it is the last hour. Now, we don't know because we can't ask John. He's dead. There will be a day when we can ask him. We don't know that, right? Can't find that out. How does it make a difference? Well, if he does believe it's the last day, then he is saying that we should be watching and waiting because the Antichrist could arrive at any moment. If he doesn't believe that it's the last hour, then this is what he's saying. We should be watching and waiting because the Antichrist could arrive at any moment. Did you get the difference? What was the difference? Did you get it, Victoria? So if it was at the last hour, and he, John believes that, that, that we're in the last hour, the Antichrist could be coming at any moment. But if it wasn't at the last hour, John is saying that the Antichrist could be coming at any moment. Did you get the difference? Where did he get this? Where did he get this? Well, he got it from Jesus. Matthew 24, 36 to 40. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. So we can knock on John for being incorrect if he thought that they were in the last hour, but he's not really incorrect in that he's teaching what Jesus taught consistently. We as followers are called to live our lives in a particular way, and that way as is as if Jesus is returning at any moment. Why? Because if you read Revelation and Daniel, you get caught up in all these fantastical signs. But if you read Jesus... You, fight, you get caught up in this. No man knows the time or the hour, and it's going to catch us all surprise. That's exactly right. Surprise. It's going to be a shock. Even if we see some signs, it's going to be a shock. See, some people tell me this. Look, at the end time, there's going to be tribulation and persecution, and it's going to be horrible, right? Such as we've never seen before. And so we're really going to understand this. And I tell you, is it going to be any different than the Christians already experienced in Sudan? Like, wouldn't they think that? Or Christians who are persecuted in Pakistan? Or Christians who are persecuted in... Uh, I mean, Christians have been persecuted in all kinds of countries. And don't you think that they thought it was the end times? I mean, how could it be any worse than what they already experienced? At that moment, don't you think that they thought it was already awful? And Christians in some other spot were enduring and they thought it was awesome. If Jesus came at that moment, those Christians would say, absolutely, we are being persecuted. And the other ones would be like, total surprise. The point was, we don't know. Jesus describes it as a shocker to some. To others, it won't be a shock at all. Of course he would come at that moment. You see, John... Daniel, Paul, and others give us signs to look for. And there are many to get obsessed, and there are many who get obsessed with looking for those signs. In fact, I've known many believers who've wasted much of their lives looking for the end times instead of 
of doing the things that Jesus tells us to do, like John Wesley says. They're looking to interpret the signs and wonder when Jesus was returning. And I think that most of us do that. When we do that, there's a kind of escapism. And it happens kind of like this. As we get older, there's a kind of escapism when we don't want to die, when we're afraid of dying. My grandfather was like that. My grandfather, as he got older, began to fall more and more into this. He began to tell me that he wasn't going to die before Jesus came again. What I realized as I got older, of course, I was young at the time, but as I got older, he was simply afraid of dying. He didn't want to pass on. He wanted Jesus to come again to to save him from death. I didn't want to tell him that he was still going to die because he was still going to lose that body. He didn't want to be stuck in that body. He was going to gain his new body. This excessive looking for the end is the kind of thing that Paul warns against in Thessalonians and Jesus speaks of in Matthew. So basically, in both sections, we're told to worry about doing the things that we're called to while on earth and let the end times take care of themselves. No one knows the hour. It's going to be a shock to us. Now, in 1 John, however, the teaching is a little bit different. Here, John says to beware of the Antichrist because many have come and the Antichrist is coming. Now, this is an interesting statement. Did you know that the Antichrist is only mentioned here in all of Scripture? Nowhere else. The Antichrist. The epistles of John. Who is the Antichrist? What is the Antichrist? So a lot of people think that the Antichrist is a false Messiah. But if you really read this text, that doesn't really make sense. What is the Antichrist? You see, John uses it of one major figure, and that seems to be a big figure that will lead people astray. And he uses it of many other lesser figures that lead people astray. So there are people who are Antichrist, who have the spirit of Antichrist, and they foreshadow the one that is to come. John, 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. But that is an interesting statement. The Antichrist then isn't a false Messiah. He's not a false Jesus. He or she doesn't say who it is, a male or female. He or she is the one who denies Jesus. This is where people sometimes get it mixed up. Sometimes people think that the Antichrists are false messiahs, people who claim to be Jesus. Now, it's possible that an Antichrist could be someone who kind of claims maybe to be Jesus, um, but that's highly unlikely because of what John says here. So follow me. The Antichrist denies the Father as well. So if it was a false Messiah, they wouldn't be pointing you to the Father, right? They, they might. So, so if it was a false Jesus, it would be someone who denies Jesus and the Father. So if they were in a Christian denomination, they would be a person who says Jesus maybe had the Christ spirit, but was not God. They would emphasize that God was an unknowable force in the heavens, and there is no way that he sent his son because such a thing is impossible, 
This is one of the ways in which you could sound Christian and yet deny the Father and the Son. But more likely, the Antichrist would be a person like Nero or Stalin or the current President Xi in China who's setting himself up like, like he's taking crosses out of churches and putting his picture up in the place of those crosses. Right? He's persecuting Christians and throwing them in jail. And they're, they're, they're making statements to him in place of Jesus. Like that is an antichrist. And that's what we're talking about here. This is what the Roman emperors did to Christians. You had to swear allegiance or, or pledge to them. That's what the antichrists in the early church were. And that's what they're warning us about. This is what John and Scripture seem to indicate, and we'll finish with this, as the man of lawlessness in Thessalonians, or the beast, or the Antichrist. These are people who utter blasphemies, seeking the worship of men, and defying God at every turn. And that's what John is talking about. So when you're running into little Antichrist, these are people who are doing the same thing. And we are told to watch out for them, even in the church. There are those who go out from us, John says, that were antichrists. They had the spirit of antichrist, meaning that there are some who even come into the church who have this spirit. Now that's interesting to me. How did they come into the church? How did they lead us astray? There was an Anglican bishop named Bishop Spong. It was like that. He came in to the church in New Jersey, and he denied that Jesus was the Messiah. He denies that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. He says that's blasphemous. He denies that Scripture is the Word of God. I don't even know if he's around anymore, but that would be the spirit of the Antichrist. He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. The bigger ones will be leaders in our society that lead us astray, turn us from the Lord. And the ones that we'll find in our congregation are the ones that John warns us about. 1 John 2, 24-25 Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. See, when John pens these words, he says, this is the antidote. This is how you fight the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist leads us astray. But John gives you the antidote to the Antichrist. He says that many will fall astray or be led astray. That's what Jesus says. Thessalonians warns us about that. Revelation warns us about that, and John warns us about that. So how do you counter this spirit? Jesus, or John says what? You dwell in Christ. You remain in Christ. You abide in Christ. Or here, let what you have heard from the beginning dwell in you. If what you heard from the beginning dwells in you or abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Dwell in the word. Dwell in the teachings which you have heard. Don't be led astray by the teachings of the world, and you'll be fine. 
Abide in Jesus. It is the antidote to the anti-Christ. Amen?